please turn the pages of your Bibles. Actually, before you turn to Haggai, <laughs> turn to Matthew chapter 6. Now, I did a little thing with different versions of the Bible yesterday, NIV, ESV, NESB. If you turn to chapter 6, you probably get a layout. You'll be able to see like the whole of the sixth chapter, right? Or maybe my Bible is just special. Now, as you're turning there, um, I want you to cast your mind back to the sermon two weeks ago when we looked at um, Luke chapter six, Luke chapter sixteen, Moses and the prophets. Remember that. And if you remember, we spoke about that. There were two main reasons the rich man ended up in hell. One of the reasons, if you remember, was the rejection of the word of God, expressed by the terms Moses and the prophet. Excuse me. But if you remember, I said the other reason, which I touched on first, was that the rich man ordered his priority differently. His priority was worldly issues. So that was his priority. So it was a, a wrong ordering of priorities. And sadly, that applies to many people. Sadly, it sometimes applies to God's people. And if you look at this Matthew chapter 6, if you look the whole chapter, if you can see, look, have a like one view of the whole chapter, one of the underlying currents here in this section in Matthew is the sinful anxiety that's brought about by a lack of faith. You know, for example, and I'm speaking to myself here, when I don't take a day out in the week, cast your mind back to Pastor Louis' um, message on the Sabbath, how to Sabbath, right? So when you don't rest, when you don't obey God's word to rest, it's a demonstration of a lack of faith. Because whatever you think needs to be get done on that day that you're supposed to be resting and you choose not to rest is actually sinful anxiety. What you're saying to God in effect is this, right, God, I know you're God, but you know what? I've got a couple of things to do today that I don't think you can take care of. So I need to take care of it. Now you might not use those words, but that's what you're doing. So there's a demonstration of a lack of faith. Your priority is to obey God's word, take a day out in the week and rest. What we have here is that very concept of kingdom priority. And it's summed up when Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6 verse 33, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness 
And all of these things shall be added unto you. And so rather than saying, well, you know, I, I do believe God, I worship you God, I know you're sovereign God, but you know, my family is important, you know, my wife, my children, the education, my money, my career, and all of these things, which are actually legitimately good things to be concerned about. But sadly, what happens is that we relegate God, his kingdom concerns, further down the list. It's not that we don't care about the things of God, it's just not our priority. So rather than building our lives around Jesus, so, you, so if you had a blank piece of paper, here's what most people would do. They would write all the other things they're concerned about. You know you do the Africa on, on the internet where you get, you know that, I don't know what you call it. It shows like the, the most used words and they're in larger print than the other smaller words. You've seen that thing. I don't know what you call it. But you know, huh? Yeah, what that, yeah, that thing. So word cloud, word cloud for those who are recording. So it, what it shows is how prominent something is. And I wonder what the word cloud would be for us. Would Jesus be a tiny little letter right at the bottom in the corner? Rather than being front and center, Jesus. And that's what we're going to see happening in our text this morning. Where God comes to his people and he lays a charge against them. In fact, he speaks in such a way that, you know what, you don't need to be an exegete to know what he's saying. It's really clear. You guys have relegated me. You've put your matters first. And some of the things they put first, but like I said, we're going to see later on, are legitimate things. Nothing wrong with them. But when it relegates God, the things of God, it's a problem. But even more than that, listen very carefully church, God has a problem with it. But even more than that, and here's where you and I really need to listen up. God says, because you've relegated me, I personally are going to frustrate you. He makes a promise. In fact, you may even find today, this morning, a key reason for what some of us, some of you, me, are suffering in our lives. And that might be lifted this morning by what we're going to find out. Let's turn to Haggai, please. We're going to read the whole of the first chapter. <coughs> Excuse me. Haggai chapter 1. And it reads, 
In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month of the first day of the month, the word of Yahweh came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of Yahweh. Then the word of Yahweh came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Is it a time for you, for you yourselves, to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins. Now therefore thus says Yahweh of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? declares the Yahweh of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, <coughs> excuse me, obeyed the voice of Yahweh their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as Yahweh their God had sent them. And the people feared Yahweh. Then Haggai, the messenger of Yahweh, spoke to the people with the with Yahweh's message. <coughs> I am with you, declares Yahweh. And Yahweh stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of Yahweh of hosts, their God, on the twenty-fourth day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. The message of the book of Haggai is one of construction, is about rebuilding the temple. In other words, and what, so what he does in speaking about rebuilding the temple is conveying the need for the people to put God first. That's the message of Haggai. Put God first. Church, question, are we putting God first? Are we putting God first? Is our, is our lives built around Jesus and the things of Jesus and Jesus' people and the anticipation of the kingdom to come or is our lives centered on us? And the purpose for Haggai writing this because the question whenever you study any book in the Bible 
Because here's this book, Haggai, two chapters. You need to ask, what's its importance in um, redemptive history? Well, it's here. The book is written to inspire the people of God to renewed dedication, renewed fervor and determination for the work of the kingdom. It's written to convince them that nothing was more important than kingdom work. And indirectly speaking to us. And the hope is, through the series, is that this book would inspire us with a renewed conviction, a renewed fervor, a renewed passion for, the, for God and the things of God. And that we would come to resolve in our minds that is nothing greater and more important than kingdom work. That's the hope. Well, let's look a little closer at our text this morning. Two main headings for us. Two main headings. One we find from verses 1 to 11 is concerned with the rebuke um, for, their, for the people's misplaced priority um, in their lives. And then after that we see um, God's blessing for their obedience to the rebuke. So let's look a little closer at this text. Look at verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of Yahweh came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. A lot of detail there, right? Lots of detail. In fact, we can even give you the precise date. <laughs> Providentially, when it's the same month of the year that this was written, or actually, he, this was actually prophesied. August 29th, to be precise. August 29th. They can be that precise. Now, I didn't work that out myself. I'd love to impress you with that but no I read a lot of books August 29th because the detail of the writing is such that they can pinpoint exactly when this was so it's a little historical background to what's going on here so all that we're reading here is what we call post-exilic. In other words, after they came back from exile. Okay? And there's three main prophets um, post-exile. Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Those three. Okay? So a little history lesson to give us a little historical context so we can understand what's going on in this passage. Alright? So we all know, I've shown you this before, how you know the children of Israel after Solomon the kingdom of Israel was split into two the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom remember that and the northern kingdom kept chopping and changing different dynasties but we have in the southern kingdom one line that remains that dynasty of the house of David never changes 
and then the northern kingdom were taken into exile by um, the Assyrians who were the superpower of the day amazing guys with technology but really savage people I told you about the mention last week um, and then after them came the Babylonians right Nebuchadnezzar a name we're very familiar with um, they took over the Assyrian Empire and became the dominant power of the day now the ten northern kingdoms were taken into exile about 140 years before the Babylonian exile so the southern kingdom Judah and Benjamin and that and some Simeonites were, 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 were still left behind where, where Jerusalem which is in Judah was still there still active so 140 years a lot of warnings more prophets repent stop your nonsense turn back to God but as usual they don't listen so Nebuchadnezzar came along sacked Jerusalem temple destroyed the whole city the whole place dust and rubbles and the people are dragged off to Babylon hence Jeremiah chapter 29 which people like to quote so the people are thinking because there are many false prophets telling them oi now God's going to come in and just rescue us and people mocked Jeremiah because Jeremiah is saying don't listen to them they're lying to you guys you're going to exile and you better love it and suck it up because it's not changing in fact 70 years you're going to be there so while you're there Jeremiah 29 get married uh, buy farms plant stuff grow stuff eat stuff and you know what God's telling you don't go praying for the enemies of Babylon to take over them because I'm going to tie your prosperity to theirs so you pray bad things for Babylon bad things will happen to you for I know the plans that I have for you right that's where all of that comes from okay so stop quoting that it doesn't apply to you you can learn a principle but it's not for you so yeah get rid of that fridge magnet anyway so that's the context God says 70 years you're going to be there and he even gives a name of the king that will be instrumental in bringing them back alright and that king was a man called Cyrus okay Cyrus so keep that in mind very interesting story surrounding all of that so Cyrus comes along and he, he belongs to the, the Medes and the Persians right Medes and the Persians is a Persian so they come along and they take over the Babylonian kingdom and Cyrus after getting in power signs a decree and says right in fact it was quite brilliant in the way he it was I mean again all these people have a bit of savagery about them and look can I just step aside for one moment conquering other people is the way of humanity alright so stop the nonsense the revisionist nonsense on history that we have and people just it's the way of the world one people conquer another people it's the way the world has always worked all around the world that's the way the world works but comes with that are our blessings the technology ways of government and all of that anyway so Cyrus says I will let people govern 
their own regions but I'm still the top guy allegiance to me so Cyrus partly being impressed seeing his name in the in, in prophecy of Isaiah signs off and not but this wasn't just for the Jewish people other nations as well they could go back and rebuild their nations but keep allegiance to the kingdom of Persia so two people that are instrumental in leading the first wave back were the people reading in here so if you're wondering why they keep naming these two guys it's a way of locating that what's about to be prophesied in history and keeping good historical record so we have these two guys Zerubbabel and Joshua alright one was a governor one was a high priest and these two led the return now the first exile we don't know where those people went the northern kingdom of Israel the only people who can trace is the southern kingdom that went into Babylon Babylonian exile so people were thinking oh fantastic we can go back to Jerusalem this is going to be awesome guess what only 50,000 people returned it was such a disappointment it's like guys we can go back but people are so comfortable in Babylon it's like are you kidding me look at my farm look at all I've amassed look 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 at the riches look at, life is good in Babylon I mean, it's like telling people who live in Cape Town or Switzerland to go back to Jokon. Why? Why would you do that? I love Jokon. So, you know, and it's like I'm leaving well-established cities and towns and farms to go back to what? Sand and rubble. No, thank you. So a lot of people stayed behind. So anyway, there was this return of about 50,000 people back to, um, to Jerusalem and it was dire. It was really terrible. And they get there and, um, and let me just pay to some geopolitical background. Over this time, Cyrus is ruling, then after Cyrus, right, he dies, Cambyses takes over, and then he dies, then a very nasty guy, um, Pseudo Smerdes, Smerdes, or whatever his name is, I can't pronounce it, you can read it. You know, he's there for a short time, he cops it, and then finally, Darius the Great, he comes in. And Darius the Great was meant to be a really, like, pretty good guy, and a lot of building projects and other things as well. But Cyrus also gave funds for the building of, rebuilding of the temple and other things so people could go back and actually get a good start. So it's under Darius and that Haggai comes and is prophesying. So that's where we are right now. So the people are back and they get back to Jerusalem and there's an initial fervor of, yeah, we're back here, great, awesome things are happening. We're going to rebuild the temple. So what they start to do is this. They lay the, um, the foundation, good start. They get building, and then things happen. They get some, some opposition from the Samaritans, some, some other people. You can read this in Ezra and Nehemiah. Just go read those books. And 
that's why you find with Nehemiah Nehemiah is, is got a sword in his hand and he's got a trowel you find the phrase sword and a trowel no okay all right I'm speaking to heathens right um sword and a trowel is a, is a good phrase go and check it out so they're building so while they're building they've got a sword of them it'd be like us today having a gun while we're building so then what's going to trouble us we shoot back and defend ourselves and that's what they were doing so the, the, the Nehemiah wasn't going to let anything stop the building so they tried to get the building going to get the wall up but the temple itself is still lagging and what happens is this through small decisions over time this person became discouraged that family became discouraged opposition is miserable it's hot it's sandy they just stop building the temple and what happens is this over time they start building their own houses nothing wrong with that establishing their own farms and all these other things and over years about 15 going on 20 years the burden work stops and everyone forgets about it in fact it was so bad at one point when they started the foundation the young guys who never saw the glory of Solomon's temple they're like yeah we're gonna build an awesome thing and they start building and the old guys who are old enough to remember the temple they're bawling their eyes out they're crying because they're going this is pathetic you should have seen Solomon's temple so they got discouraged so some of it was genuine discouragement like we can't really do anything with this so some of them gave up so the combination of fear despondency unfaithfulness that made the heart of the people faint and stop building and that brings us to where we're at but what happens is this rather than God coming to the people and saying ach shame I understand come here let me give you a hug rather God through Haggai exposes their selfish disregard for the purpose and the glory of God look at verses 2 to 4 thus says Yahweh of hosts these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of Yahweh then the word of Yahweh came by the hand of Haggai the prophet is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins see God's point was this you've got all these excuses oh we're fearful of the Samaritans we're fearful of these outside forces I'm a bit despondent I'm not having a good day and other reasons but isn't it funny that those reasons are not stopping you building your own houses isn't it interesting God is saying funny that is I like your house nice panels by the way 
See the security features, pretty impressive. Your concerns, your excuses for not rebuilding my temple is not applying to what I see you building for yourselves. So God lays a charge against them. I'm sorry, not buying your excuses at all. You're selfish and self-centered. But pastor, you don't understand. You know, my work, so busy. Hmm. You know what we do as Christians? The blessings God give us, we use as an excuse to not build his kingdom. Can I say, what I'm about to say, I'm not trying to scare. I'm not trying to threaten. I'm not kind of, ooh. Listen carefully, church. May God not deal with us. May he be merciful to us. May he not deal with us in such a way that he takes those blessings away from us. We use our children as excuses. Our careers, our family, other families, friends, as excuses. But God's not having any of it. You know why? It's a demonstration of a lack of faith in putting God first. Seek first his kingdom. Kingdom priority. Ah, your job is it, or your business is it? Alright. Maybe if I take your business away, you'll have a lot of time on your hands. Yeah? The children? Alright. Maybe if I stir them up a bit, and make them delinquents. Maybe you'd be at prayer meeting on your knees praying. Oh, your health. Your health. Oh, how, how's that? All right, okay, your health. Huh. Couple of nights in hospital. Let's see how you do it. that goes for you. It sounds meaning the way I'm saying it. But we're going to see. I'm hopefully I'm going to demonstrate to you. How God allows these things in our lives to refocus our attention where it should be. Because that's what these people are doing. But before we go on, I just want to do something very quickly. Now, the important question we need to ask as we look at this temple building, okay? And it speaks to, it speaks to some people's eschatology. Right? It's very important we understand this. And I want to give us a template as we go throughout this series about how I believe we need to understand temple building. And what temple we today, as New Covenant people, need to look at the temple. I mean, the question is this. Is this book, as it focuses on temple building, is this book asking us 
to go to Jerusalem, right? Or I'll contribute to some fund to rebuild the physical temple. You know, let's go there, ask the Muslims and the Jewish just to step aside while we build a temple and start the Third World War. Is that what it's asking us to do? I don't think that's the answer. So that means four, four, I want to present to us four ways of understanding temple. And the New Testament is always the key to understanding what's been said, especially in the Old Testament. Because Jesus is the hermeneutical tool. Always. First of all, there's four things. First of all, the Bible presents to us um, the person of Jesus Christ as a temple. We read in John chapter 2, verse 19 to 21, as Jesus said, Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus interprets this. And God willing, God willing, next year we go through John, we're going to see this. That's why John 14 says, And the Word became flesh, and the Word there, the Word is, He tabernacled amongst us. He, he dwelt amongst us. He's the temple. He's the true temple. So Jesus, the person of Jesus Christ, is presented as a temple. S secondly, the Christian, the Christian, you and I, the individual Christian, is presented as a temple. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, we understand this. It says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Our bodies. We're a temple. It's a temple of the Holy Spirit. The glory of God resides here. That's an amazing truth that should blow our minds. Thirdly, the church. The church. The gathering of the individual Christians, the living stones. We understand this from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. Peter writes, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ that's us, the church we're the temple together and then finally the new creation the place where God's presence will be fully manifested amongst his people forever and ever we see that in Revelation 21 don't we when that, the new heavens is coming down and John sees it and he says what does he see? he sees a new city a garden city more than that the very dimensions of that city resembles what? the temple and which speaks to the, to the central theme of the Bible which is this I will be their God they will be my people and I will dwell amongst them this is what it's all about. It's a return to Eden, where we got kicked out of. All humanity were exiled out of Eden. 
and the Bible, Bible ends with us returning to Edenic existence. So keep that in mind as we look at this temple building in um, charge from Haggai. So the people had excuses for not building um, the temple. Other things have taken priority. Like I said, family careers, security issues, education, friends. And this is usually as a result of small decisions taken over many years that leads to this kind of relegation. The things of Yahweh have been relegated to a lower place. And the thing is, is like I said before, there's nothing wrong with these things in and of themselves. But it raises this question, what is the end for which we are doing what we are doing? Let me repeat that question. You see very carefully church, what is the end for doing the things that we are doing? Is it the glory of God or is it for self-satisfaction? How are you using your time? Is it for the glory of God? You see, people's mindset is this. I'm a Christian, Sunday morning, I do Christian things. But Monday to Saturday, that's my time. And God understands. No, all of life is worship. All of life. And worship is not just get here, sing some songs, and ding ding dong, what have you. No, worship is everything. Do all to the glory of God. You're eating. How you spend your money, the use of your time. The people you associate with. If you don't find joy in associating and fellowshipping and sharing your lives with God's people, you need to question who you are. If you would rather spend time with other people than God's people, you need to question your identity in Christ. I'm choosing my words carefully. You need to question your identity in Christ. If God's people are painfully to be around, if you're embarrassed by the church, if this is beneath you, you need to question your identity in Christ. Jesus died for these people. He bled. All things, he says, Christ in Philippians in Ephesians 1. He's Jesus is head over all things to the church. And yet you find no joy or solace in the church. Shame on us. So God through Haggai says to them, and he uses this phrase twice. In verse 5 and verse 7. He calls them to think carefully. He says, in the ESV he says, consider. Consider. He calls them 
to think deeply about what's been happening to them he says to them do you want to know why you're not getting ahead in life I'll tell you why do you want to know why you're sick I'll tell you why do you want to know why you know your marriage is in a state that it is I'll tell you why do you want to know why it seems everything is lined up for you to be a success but there's no success I'll tell you why you see church if you are pursuing all of these things as an end in themselves rather than to the glory of God Yahweh says to the people that you will never find satisfaction you will never find satisfaction in fact God promises to personally frustrate your efforts it is a, it is a strategic obstruction of divine measure God says I will place it so strategically so you every which way you run you will be frustrated Mamela, there is no satan in a corner somewhere obstructing you with some of the things you experience in your life ah it is the devil and we start you know stretching to do going to spiritual battle I'm going to fast for seven days you're, fa you're fasting for nothing God is getting fast all you want it's me now I'm not saying every sickness every frustration you go through is because of sin or God being in the way I'm saying it, check yourself check your service check your relationship to all of these things I'm talking about it may be, it could be God himself saying nope not going to happen but and we see this in the Old Testament a lot Deuteronomy chapter 27 28 we see it there the conditions that are placed in if you do this these blessings but if you don't these curses now as new covenant Christians new covenant people that doesn't apply to us in that way we touched on this on Wednesday because our righteousness is in Christ so how can we look at this from a new covenant perspective about disconsidering I just want to offer some suggestions to us you know take it or leave it it's just something to just help us kind of think through some stuff and work through it and this is what we're to do as Christians when we come to these kind of texts we have to work through it rather than some definitive answer so how ought we to understand blessings and cursings from a new covenant position it's in 1st Corinthians chapter 11 and James the book of James as well we learn something that sometimes um, disobedience or sin can lead to sickness Paul tells him this James as well James chapter 5 some reason why some people are sick is because of sin disobedience 
That's why the first thing you check of your list, whenever you're experiencing any frustration, sickness, or anything, repent. At least check that off the list. Repent. The point is this, your sin will lead you to an unhappy circumstance. And many Christians who are suffering what we may call depression, many a times it's because of disobedience and sin. And when now you know what you are doing, even if other people don't know it, but you know, and you know what happens? God's blessing to you is to crush your spirit by the Holy Spirit in such a way that he denies you that joy. Because your sin grieves the Holy Spirit. Do you think you can wallow in sin and wrongness and the things of the flesh and be happy in Jesus? It's impossible. It's impossible. God honors his name. He will not grant you that joy and peace. Also, I mean, look at blessing. So that's one illustration, one example. But also we can understand blessing in this way. In John chapter 4, remember Jesus with the woman by the well? And they were having a discussion about where to worship in the world and who, who dug the well. And Jesus said to her, Whosoever drinks of the water that I will give will never thirst again. We learn an important principle there. You see, the root to all other satisfaction begins with your satisfaction in Christ and your desire for his glory. Let me repeat that. The root to your satisfaction and joy begins with your satisfaction in Jesus Christ and his glory. If it's not rooted in there, there is no such thing. If you're not finding satisfaction in Christ, the Christian cannot find it anywhere else. It's impossible. We have other examples in Mark chapter 10, in verse 28 to 30. You can note it down. Mark chapter 10, verses 28 to 30. If you remember, the rich young ruler came to Jesus. You know, how can he enter the kingdom? And he walks away disappointed. And, and um, Peter said, well, if, if the rich man isn't, isn't blessed, we're in trouble. And we've left everything to follow with Jesus. And Jesus goes to Peter, Mate, you're not getting a raw deal. You're getting a good deal, by the way. So stop your nonsense. So Jesus says to him in verse 28, He says, Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, There is no one who has left house, or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or lands for my sake and for the gospel who would not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life sadly there are churches that are all about prosperity 
it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a doctrine from the pit of hell. You should, a Christian should never be sick. A Christian should always be rich. And all of this nonsense is demonic. It's not biblical. We're promised persecutions, trials, and suffering. In this life, John, in this life, John 16, 33, in this life, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. Philippians chapter 1 verse 29. It's not only be ordained to you that you know you'll be saved, but that you should suffer. But in the midst of this, the Christian still finds joy. As we share our lives together, investing in one another. Yours is mine, mine is yours. I know we struggle with this, but this is the example we have from Scripture. And Acts chapter 2 as well reminds us of this from verse 43 to 47. We are to have all things in common. Common. No Christian should be, no person in this church should be hungry and destitute while the rest of us are feasting and are fine. Your family abandons you because you're a Christian. Here's your new family. Here's blessing. Here's wealth. Again, the Christian's joy, Philippians 2. Paul says to the Philippians, Make my joy complete by being of one mind. And this was the outworking of Paul's service to the Philippians. Church, are you miserable? Paul says to us, Get on and serve one another. There's joy in serving one another. Are you serving the church? Or do you just come on Sunday morning, tick the box and go home? No Christian gets to do that. You must be serving the body. You have to. It's not Joshua you're serving. It's not Louis you're serving. You're serving Jesus. As you serve the body, you're serving the body of Jesus. And Christ loves his body. And when you refuse to serve, your service begins here. Your discipleship, everything begins here. When you refuse to serve and be part of all that's going on here, it's not us you're rejecting. You're rejecting the head of this body. And you are on a route to solo discipleship which is never found in the Bible. And finally, the response to their obedience. This is beautiful. So they're instructed to build to God's glory. Verse 8, if you go back there, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says Yahweh. You see, in those days, if each nation had their gods, that's how it worked. And he wanted to impress the other nations of how glorious and big and wise and powerful your God is. And one of the ways you measured that was by building an impressive temple. We see it in, arch in archaeology. Temples of the past, 
They were built to the glory of their gods. And God says, Yahweh says to the children of Israel, I'm not looking very good right now, am I? Look at that pathetic temple. Is that the best you guys can do? It's not even completed. Because it's, it's telegraphing to the other nations. <laughs> the gods of the Jews is pathetic and small. Look at their temple. And God says, is that the monument you're going to build for me? While you're building impressive houses for yourselves. How are we living to the glory of God? Or is our lives causing people to blaspheme the name of God, the name of Christ? That's why we're encouraged in Matthew 6 verse 3. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all the paneled houses, and all your career issues, and all your family issues, and all that will be added onto you. Do you see? That's a, how you should order your priority. Seek first his kingdom and righteousness. And all of those other things will follow. So even though the Christian life is characterized by, characterized by suffering and, and trials, yet when lived to the glory of God, there is true peace and satisfaction. It also reorders your thinking, your mindset. And in the last section, from verse 12 to verse 15, we have the, the promise of divine presence when we obey God. This is beautiful. God says to them, verse 13, look at verse 13. I am with you, declares Yahweh. I am with you. When you ask most Christians, which of God's promises do they cherish the most? This is never amongst them. It's never amongst them. But this promise sums up everything. When Jesus says to the disciples in John 14, I'm going away to prepare a place for you, then I shall come back and, and bring you to who? To myself. Not to the streets of gold. Not to this, not to that, not to be on clouds. No, 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 no. Those things are all nice. But it's about me. My presence. And you see, listen very carefully church. Humanity is yet to know the glory and the power of the presence of God because even we Christians don't cherish it you're not seeking it it's not the first thing you pray for God's presence I'm with you build because I'm with you don't be afraid of the first. Why? Because I am with you. But 
can't we also don't worry about that don't be anxious about that why because I am with you build and this is summed up ultimately in that great commission that sums up what we are to be all about turn to Matthew 28 we'll finish with this Matthew 28 we all know the passage as we're turning the pages those of you who are here on Wednesday evening I hope you're noticing all the references Matthew 28 from verse 18 we read and Jesus came and said to them all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you so it commissions us to advance the kingdom to all to the ends of the earth to go to baptize to make disciples to teach because he's got all authority in heaven and earth but more than that this is not a king who's just sitting on his throne and says go I mean that's impressive as it is but says don't just go guess what I'm coming too I'll be there when they throw you into prison I'm with you tomorrow's your execution I will be with you your child's going for the chemotherapy tomorrow your wife your son your daughter I will be with you that boss at work troubles you you're scared hassles you it's not very pleasant I will be there as well newborn baby some joy I'm with you and behold I am with you always to the end of the age what a promise as we build let's be reminded of this he's with us never leaves us Amen Father we thank you for your immeasurable grace and mercy for you do not leave us in our unhappy circumstance or frustration but you visit us still through prophets who preach your word who remind the people 
of their responsibility towards you, your kingdom, your glory, your purpose. And it's so easy to forget these things. Some of us have been doing it for so many years that our senses have become numbed to the urgency of the situation. The urgency to build. Lord, may you now even more graciously revive us. Revive us. Shake away the dross. Break, Lord, the chains of the imprisonment in which you've placed ourselves through disobedience and sin. And Lord, may you give us a new song by your Spirit, stir up a passion within us for your purpose and your glory above all else. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. And all the saints say, Amen, Amen indeed.